The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, it's Janie. This bonus episode is a follow-up to the Long Island serial killer episode I released a while back. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend that you pause here, listen to the Long Island serial killer episode, and then come back to this one. Recently, I had the pleasure of interviewing Chris Mass, the host of LISK, Long Island Serial Killer Podcast. Season 1 of LISK is available wherever you listen to podcasts. I highly recommend you subscribe and listen to LISK. It's a deep dive into the Long Island Serial Killer case and a very binge-worthy listen. One last thing. My discussion with Chris includes topics such as body dismemberment and other disturbing details. Listener discretion is advised. Now, let's get into my interview with Chris Mass, host of Lisk Long Island Serial Killer Podcast. Jamie, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be on your show. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on and, and talk about this crazy case. Yes, and uh, it, is a, uh, it is a crazy one, just how it starts, and hopefully it has an ending at some point. I know, and, it, and it's frustrating, too, because you see that a lot of things were, were maybe botched you know, in the investigation. And I always am so, I try to be careful not to jump to, just because a case is unsolved, doesn't necessarily mean it was botched, but you know, based on everything I've learned about the case, it seems like there were some, maybe some missteps here, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely dive into that. But yeah, we're obviously, we're talking about the Long Island serial killer case, which I covered on my podcast, but I'm sure you are much more of a case expert than I am because you guys at the Lisk podcast, how do I say the name? Lisk, Is it Lisk? Uh, serial killer. Yeah. I mean, you can say it however, but it's Lisk. We say Lisk and then, you know, the, the whole name is Lisk Long Island Serial Killer. Yeah. So you guys basically, from what I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have taken there, you guys had a TV show that you made out of the Long Island Serial Killer case and you thought, let's do a serialized podcast on it. And that's what you did. So in season one of Lisk, you guys did a deep dive on the Long Island serial killer case, which is just fascinating and, and equally tragic. So I just kind of, I have some questions for you that I'd like to walk through if you don't mind. Sure. Bring them. Okay, cool. So, you know, let's just start off by, you know, kind of give me a brief description, a recap of the overall case of the Long Island serial killer. Yeah. So this case really kicks off as far as the public knows in 2010. There's an escort who lives in Jersey does mainly escort work in the city, Manhattan, and she gets a call and she goes out to Long Island to this little beachside kind of hidden community. And when you get to know Long Island, you realize like most people don't even know where this place Oak Beach is. It's this little community on an outer outer island, like a barrier island. And she goes out there and she, she has this strange date with this John, this client. And she ends up kind of running off into the night and disappearing. And that kicks it all off to where they finally start taking it seriously. The police do, the Suffolk County police do, and they start looking for her. And it, you know, months in, they don't know where she's at. She's disappeared. Her family's looking. 
And then they pick back up the search probably like seven or eight months, six months later, and they find a body and they're Mm -hmm. like, we found her. And then the next day they're, you know, doing forensics at the scene of where they find this body along Ocean Parkway. It was by chance that they found her. This Suffolk County cop was out training his cadaver dog and he would do this on the side, just like bring the dog out and kind of search for Shannon. And the next day they find another body and they find another body and they find another body and none of them are Shannon. And that's where the whole case kicks off. And those first four bodies are basically what we cover in season one. We get into their four sex workers who went missing as far back as, I'm going to get some dates here, but you know, some have been missing over three years. Hmm. And some had been missing only, one of them had been missing only a few months. And they find these bodies and it turns into this whole case. And it all started because this one girl went missing. And as you learn, she might not even be connected to the the case of the serial killer, which is clearly what they have on their hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that was Shannon Gilbert who kind of kicked things off and she had gone on a, a date. From what I understand, she, she met the gentleman through Craigslist. Yes. Yeah. Right. And there's this mysterious call as well that lasted something like 23 minutes where Shannon calls 911, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, from the John's house and says, they're trying to kill me, which I always zero in on the word there, like they're trying to kill me. But then I learned later, and I don't know if this is true, that she also, Shannon suffered from schizophrenia. She did. So, yes. Yeah. So, so could that is, have been uh, an, an episode or, or truly, I mean, it's also kind of coincidental too. I mean, she's, she goes on this date, you know, which is very risky. She's a sex worker. And, and so, and then she places the call to 911. They're trying to kill me. Um, and she ends up dead. So of course you're wanting to believe that somebody killed her, but then there's that little nugget, you know, over here that says, well, she was schizophrenic and may have been off her meds. I read. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, so we, in season one, you get to hear from her boyfriend at the time who knew, you know, they'd been together for a while. And so, you know, a year or two, and he knew her backstory and that she had been diagnosed as schizophrenic, you know, maybe bipolar, and that she had been on medicine and she didn't like it and she was off, but she'd never had an episode like some people claim she had that night. Mm -hmm. Um. But you're right. It is one of those where you're like, you know, you could look at it and go down this road of, you know, she was up late. Maybe she did some drugs, you know, this weird mix of things that kind of did, a, you know, made her had a psychotic break and, you know, to make her call 911 and then not to, you know, she had a driver there mm-hmm. who had driven her out and was waiting and she ran from him. She ran from other people in the, in the neighborhood who she knocked on their doors and asked for help and then she disappears. And so, there's a lot of that where you're like, you know, clearly it was a psychotic break and it ended tragically. Mm-hmm. It seems, you know, as far as what you know up to this point. But then as you look into it, and there's just weird stuff that happens just in this story before you even discover a body with a strange doctor who lives in the neighborhood who mm-hmm. he was kind of the Johnny on the spot guy who always helped out the neighborhood. It's, and it's really small. It's like 70 homes, you know, this small little neighborhood. And he was always in everyone's business and was on the board. And he starts getting involved and says, well, we're going to help find her. And then he calls her mother, you know, a few Mm. after she disappears and wondering if she made it home. And it's like, 
you know, there's the question of how he got her number, which we think we know. And then, but why would he call her? Mm-hmm. And so there's talk that, you know, maybe he did something, maybe he gave, you know, being a doctor, he gave her, you know, like a tranquilizer, something to settle her down and it went bad and then they had to do something. Yeah. So just that whole, just her story alone, which might, again, might not even connected to the serial killer in and of itself is a bizarre, bizarre coincidence of, you know, just a whole weird series of events. Yeah, that's just one aspect that makes this case so strange that Shannon Gilbert, who sort of kicked this investigation off and her body was found near, you know, the Gilgo Four, who clearly were the work of a serial killer because, you know, they were all kind of like disposed of in the same manner, burlap sacks. So it would just be so strange if, I mean, the 911 call makes you think that somebody murdered her, but then you find out she's schizophrenic and her behavior that night seems like some sort of episode. She ends up dead, but she's disposed of, or not disposed of, but not found in a burlap sack. So that's a little bit different. And then I think the medical examiner or the pathologist was really, it was inconclusive. There weren't there two autopsies performed? Yes. They, you know, the county did one when she was initially found and the family had her, had another one done by Dr. Baden, who is probably the most famous, you know, coroner pathologist in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, he's done every celebrity, you know, he just did George Floyd. Yeah. And he found different things than what the county coroner found. So yeah, there are those questions that happen, you know, that people are like, what's that about? You know, and, and there, and there was this theory that when she was finally found about, you know, a year and a half after she went missing in the marsh behind this doctor's house, literally, her clothing and some items of hers were found probably like a hundred feet behind his house. Mm. That's where she would have run into the marsh. So maybe it's not connected, but it's pretty odd. And then her about a quarter mile from there, she's found her body's found and her body, you know, they're like, well, she succumbed to the elements, but it was like 50 degrees that night. So how do you succumb to the elements when it's 50 degrees? It's not freezing by any means. No. Um, And she was so, I've been to the spot where her body was. And she is 30 feet, 40 feet from the road, from this main <sighs> highway, which we, she was probably heading to. So that's what leads people to you know, think there's foul play involved because it's like she was right there. She didn't right. freeze to death. Like, well, hypothermia, it does get cold out there at night and maybe there was some more water, but she didn't drown. That was a theory. Well, she drowned. And you know, one of the chief of detectives who we talked to is like, no, she was kind of over a bush. Her body was over a bush. So she was elevated. So she didn't drown, you know, 50 degrees, you don't, that's not hypothermia weather, even if it's blowing and it's cold. So there's that leaves all these questions to like, what was it some bad reaction or was there foul play? Yeah, it's so, I mean, you know, a lot of people say, well, it could have been a tragic accident, but what, like you, you just talked about, what could have happened to her? It doesn't seem likely that it was a tragic accident. It just, um, to me, points more to foul play, but it's just, it's frustrating because you want answers. And I was really hoping as I was researching this to when they did the family hired the pathologist for the second time, you know, to do the second autopsy, Dr. Mm-hmm. Batten, you're really hoping that they, you could go, aha, this is what it is, you know, and then for that to be somewhat inconclusive as well. So you, like we talked about earlier, you turned this from a TV show into a podcast. So what kind of challenges did you face in that whole process? 
Yeah. So, you know, we're still working on the TV show aspect, but as we're waiting and working and I was like, you know, let's use this audio. And one of the challenges was, you know, we did some amazing recreations for a television series that hopefully comes to fruition that you can't really use. You know, there's no audio, but some amazing visuals that you're like, well, those are not going anywhere in a podcast. And so, you know, you, you have to learn to let stuff go that you've, that you've worked on so long. But yeah, the challenges were tough because when you're doing an interview with someone and you're in the room with them, you're, you're reading body language and you have to learn how to convey stuff and, and pick up on stuff that you don't get in a podcast. So there were some challenges, but it, it wasn't as hard as I thought. I mean, and there were challenges, but um, it's, you know, if you have a good story, there's, you get a lot of grace too. And this is an amazing story that needs attention. And so I'm glad that until this TV series does come out that, you know, there's more attention for the case, really. Oh, absolutely. Which it definitely needs. I mean, these women had families and lives. And so it is great to have their story told. It's so tragic what happened to them. And of course, they are marginalized people. And of course, so you can't help but think that that sort of led also to the point at which we're at now, meaning we have an unsolved case, you know, and, um, you know, did law enforcement pay enough attention to it because of who these victims were? Can't help but think those kinds of things as well. Well, and one thing that I was just reminded of that was actually a blessing for a podcast is that, you know, in TV, they want big and loud and fast oftentimes. And with podcasts, you have an audience that wants to know about the victims. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen some stuff done on this and I'm not disparaging any of the work that's been done on this. Any work that moves the story forward is always good. But where, you know, the victims get two minutes. Yeah. This person who was a mother or a daughter or a sister, and they're like, yeah, 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 let's get back to who's the killer. And so yes. what I loved about the podcast is, you know, we did a whole episode on one, one of the victims. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at least those four, they each almost got a whole episode. And we've heard from the families that we've talked to and how they feel it's really honored, you know, their family member. And so that was really great because, you know, when you go and spend time with these people who are still broken, but are willing to share this story because they want the word out there, you want to do it justice. And that's where I I was, I feel very blessed to be able to do a podcast because you really got to spend time and talk about that. Yeah, they had a rough time and they were sex workers and they went missing. It's like, no, they were this amazing daughter who struggled, Mm -hmm. you know, like we Mm -hmm. all do. Mm -hmm. um, How it could have been any one of us, you know, almost. Yeah. And I think that's awesome that you guys are doing that. And I think it's so important. And you're right with a podcast. I think that a lot of listeners, they really do want to learn about who the victims were. What were they doing in their lives when this happened? Where were they going? What was their family life like? And so it's great because people read or hear serial killer and the focus just automatically goes on the serial killer. Who was he? And of course, it's fascinating. You know, I've never been into like the gory details or anything like that. There's some podcasts I have to turn off, in fact, because it's just, it's too much. But I admittedly, I'm very fascinated by a killer's brain. It's just the psychology that has always fascinated me. And I think that's part of my obsession with true crime content is that I really, truly just want to know what separates them from the average everyday human being? What makes them tick? How did they come to this place where they are this brutal killer? It's like almost like they have to kill. I mean, I don't 
know. I mean, I, I've never known a serial killer or <laughs> a brutal murderer, yeah, but my it's brain like, does not work that way. Thank God. You know? Right. Yeah. Thank goodness. Right. I mean, I've had a few thoughts on the freeway, but uh, we won't go there. Or as parents, parents, I get it. That too. Get it, but... Teenagers, right? We both have teenagers. So we've had some thoughts. Let's admit it. Thoughts, but yeah, <laughs> thank goodness. But carrying it out is another thing that's yeah. totally different. So speaking of the victims, going back to Shannon, do you, have you just personally, for based on what you know, have you come up with a theory? Where do you sit? Do you think she's part of, you know, a victim of the serial killer? And if so, who's your favorite suspect? Like who's oh, your top suspect? That's a big one. That's it is. It's a, it's a loaded question. Yeah. Because it's, it's hard. I, I actually can't really answer it because I could, I bounce back and forth. Yes, me too. And you know, I want to be very, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you know, we try to be very reasonable and not too sensationalistic and try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt and not run with the crazy theories that always come with these cases. And so my rational brain wants to say, you know, and I have family members who deal with some mental illness, so I know how it can Mm -hmm. go that she did have a psychotic break. And, you know, maybe there was drugs in her system that had some bad reaction and she ended up coming out, you know, in the, in the marsh. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hypothermia and it wasn't drowning, but that's where I want to go. But what really keeps me on the fence is when you, if you listen to the podcast, Bob Kolker, Robert Kolker, who wrote the book, Lost Girls, that became the movie on Netflix. Mm-hmm. He is the most rational, most grounded, most reasonable, not wanting to run with theories and he still thinks something happened. He's like, there's, there's too many people that know too much about what happened in Oak beach. And yeah. And so when he says that, it makes me go like, wow, there's, it keeps me on the fence. Like you, I bounce back and forth where I'm like, there's no way, but who knows? And then it, you but know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So I go back and forth. So I, I would say I'm 60, 40, that 60% that, that something happened to her, some sort of, you know, reaction and it was a tragic accident. But 40%, mm-hmm. if, if we're breaking down the numbers, that she, yeah. there was some sort of foul play, something happened in the neighborhood and they had to clean things up. Yes. And I think I'm, and I hate to take the safe bet, but it's like, I'm kind of really where you stand as well. And it reminds me of a case and I don't remember names and I don't remember places, but it was years ago. I watched this true crime TV show And there was this young couple, they did drugs together, and it was a really cold night, freezing, snowing. And because of the drugs they were on, their judgment was impaired, and they were really, really cold inside their car. I can't remember why the car wouldn't drive, or maybe they thought it wouldn't drive because they were on drugs. And so instead of staying in the car, they thought that they would be safe, warmer, or safer in this like abandoned shed. And they ended up freezing to death. If they would have stayed in the car, you know, there was some, you know, it's like the only reason they died is because, yeah, they were, they were on drugs and couldn't make the right decision. So they died. They froze that night and they wouldn't have if they would have been sober. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, my mind goes there with, with Shannon Gilbert and I go, yes, there's a possibility she was on drugs and having an episode and, and made a poor decision. And it was a tragic accident. What could have happened to her? I don't know. So that's mysterious. But, you know, of course, there's that 911 call and that could have all been part of the the, the episode. But, you know, she's in a high risk situation. You know, she's at 
at John's house. And we all know that bad things can happen to sex workers at a John's house. And she calls 911 and then, oh, she ends up dead. So yeah, well, I don't know. Interesting is the story we don't know, as you know, and as a lot of people who, who know this case, the 911 call's never been released. Now, it was finally released a month or so ago to Shannon Gilbert's estate's attorney, John Ray. Okay. So right. he has heard it, and we actually had him for a bonus episode to talk about it for what he could talk about. He's not allowed to discuss contents of it, but he was able to confirm and deny some things that had come out about the call. Mm. But that aside, so we don't know exactly what's on that, but the story of what happened that night mainly comes from her driver, a guy named Michael Pack. Right. And I've, we've talked to Michael Pack and we've said it, you know, this is one of those where I try not to make too many judgment calls, but he's kind of sketchy. And we talk about it in the podcast and he listened to it and said he really liked it, <laughs> which was interesting. But <laughs> yeah, That's interesting. Because we said, you know, Colker says some stuff about him and we kind of confirm it. And he was like, can't wait for season two. And we're like, which just kind of tells you a little bit about him. And he'll say things like, you know, well, my alibi, you know? Uh. And so he's got this, you know, like he's worked this story out and he hasn't figured out. So I think there's more that happened that night. Now, was there a big party and did it get weird? I don't know, but it comes down to him knowing who was there and the John who doesn't really talk. And we tried to talk to him and he's, you know, he was out there himself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what supposedly happened with, you know, that night and who was there and who wasn't there is on the word of some questionable characters. So I would love to know what, what really happened and, and maybe that 911 call and maybe why they didn't want to release it is there's more there that we don't know about because it is 23 minutes and, yeah. you know, there's, there's some other voices on there, kind of what we've heard. So who knows? Okay. Yeah. And there's, there's been, you know, Theories floated that uh, the killer is a member of law enforcement or was a member of law enforcement based on certain factors. And so there's that whole twist. And yeah, the Michael Pack. So, and again, if Shannon was having a manic episode, she also ran from the neighbor. She ran from everybody, right? So that's all very weird. If she really thought her life was in danger and, she, you know, she, you would think that she'd go into the neighbor's house and just help me, save me, but, and not run, but you don't know. But she also ran from Michael Pack. And so who knows if he was up to no good. And, and it sounds like just from based on what you're saying, it sounds like he's a little contrived, a little That's rehearsed. A maybe. Yeah, he has kind of worked it out and kind of knows how to stick to this story. And there are definitely things that don't make sense. You know, when, you know, he says that once she vanished into the night, you know, he, so he leaves the John's house, kind of follows her in his car. She's running down the road. And she goes to this man's house. The lights are on. She knocks this old man who's up early going to drive upstate, Gus Coletti. And what's interesting is she's like, you need, I need help. I need help. She's still on the call. And he's like, I've called the cops. I'm, I'll, I'll call the cops. And that freaks her out, which is weird. That's hmm. why I was like, why does calling the cops freak her out? Even though she's on the line with the cops, doesn't right. make sense. But that's what supposedly sends her running again. But we don't know, like you said, if Michael Pack was up to no good. Now, he says that he was trying to get her in the car just to get out of there. And then once she kind of disappeared and ran off down a road he didn't know was there, he said, I looked for her for like almost an hour. And we know that's not true because he says he left the gate, which is 
60 feet from Coletti's house. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, it's a, it's a gated community. He left the gate and looked down this kind of uh, an entrance road to the neighborhood, which is not that long. It would not take that long to look. And then he drove back to the city. Plus, cops were there not long after that, and they mm-hmm. did not see him. So that's just one aspect of his story that he's worked out to say like, oh, I did my part to look for that, that doesn't add up when you do the math. Right. So it doesn't mean he's a killer, of course. Yeah. But it's just one of those things that does not make sense in the story. And we're hoping that, you know, John Ray will let us listen to this call soon and he gets to release it. And we'll see if that tells us anything else of what happened, at least at the house. Yeah, hopefully some new information can be gleaned from that call. So we'll all be waiting with bated breath to hear that. You know, about the victims, so there was the Gilgo Four, as they're referred to. What is known about those four women? Was it three women or was it four including Shannon, but she was not part of the Gilgo Four? It was four not including Shannon. Right, okay. That's the big question, is she tied to the other bodies? So, but they first find a body, they... And, you know, when they find a body that December, she goes missing May 1st. In December, they find a body. They automatically think it's her. That's who they're looking for. And they realize it's not because Shannon has a titanium piece in her jaw from a domestic dispute with her boyfriend. Oh, wow. And so that's one of those where it's like they finally figure out like, well, it can't be Shannon. There's no metal with the body of, you know, this, this plate in her jaw. And this turns out to be Melissa Bartholomew, the first victim found. And she was from Buffalo. She had gone missing in 2009. She'd been missing for about a year and a half by the time she was finally found. And we got to meet her family and her younger sister and just a sweet heart of a family. And so she had moved to New York in 2009 to pursue this dream of she'd gotten her cosmetology degree. She wanted to own a salon in New York and got mixed up with the wrong crowd and ended up kind of having this man who became her pimp. And they had kind of had a falling out and she was working on Craigslist on her own in 2009 and set up a date for, we don't know exactly the details of the date, but we know that she ended up in Long Island because that night when she went missing, she checks her phone, her messages and it pings in a t- off a tower in Massapequa, which is a town not too far from Gilgo Beach. And so we know she was out there, and then she vanishes. And her family, you know, her sweet, sweetheart of a mom and her younger sister start trying to, you know, trying to get a hold of the NYPD because that's where she was living. She was living in Queens, and they're no help. And Buffalo PD finally helps. And, but nothing comes of it. They don't know where she went. And, Sadly, they find out, they knew, they were watching the news that night they found the body. Mm. And they just knew when they talked about the description of the remains found that it was their daughter. And it was, you know, to find out from Nancy Grace, I can't imagine. Awful. Yes. But they finally had answers of what had happened. And what's known about what happened that night is that she had, you know, had kind of gone off on her own, kind of breaking away from this pimp who was abusive was setting up dates on Craigslist, set up this kind of a big date, a big payday, and was never seen again. Gosh. And until she was found, you know, her body was found that December 2010. Oh my gosh. And was it her little sister who yes. the, her killer actually called and taunted a little bit and then finally admitted, I've, I've killed your sister and sort of threatened her a little bit? 
Yeah. So once she went missing, you know, there were weeks where they're waiting, like what happened? What, you know, what's going on? And, and her sister, Amanda, you know, she was about 15 at the time and she had done Mm -hmm. these trips where she would go to the city and stay with her big sister and they would get their nails done and see the city and go to a show and this summer trip was coming up. And so they were trying to set up the details of like, well, you're going to pick her up here and we're getting the ticket. And then Melissa in New York just went silent. And so they knew something was wrong. And in about a couple weeks in, Amanda's phone rings and it says it's Melissa calling. Hmm. And it was the killer. And he had had her phone and he said some horrible things. But he knew, and this is one of the reasons that you brought up of why they think it might be law enforcement is this person knew, which I mean, I guess you could watch a TV show and kind of know some of the details of when to get off a phone for, for tracing. But he, he would call, say horrible, mean things and keep it under a minute. Mm. And then he would end up hanging up. And he did this about four times over like a three week period. And they were trying to get a phone that would record calls. They were trying to get this set up and then he went silent. So they never got to, and they did finally track the calls down, but they were from these busy areas in Manhattan, like Times Square or Penn Station, where there's thousands of people, thousands of phones. Right. You you know, you wouldn't call from my backyard because you can pretty much pinpoint that. Yeah. So that that may have been strategic calling from an area like that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And she's 15 years old receiving these phone calls. I mean, that has got to be so haunting and so awful. It's, and we talked to her about it. And when we talked to her last year, when, when we had our interview, she was the same age of her sister when her sister went missing. Mm. And yeah, it's a, it's a powerful interview and it's a powerful episode because they were a really tight knit family. And, you know, obviously Melissa had made some not some of the best decisions mm-hmm. and, but just heartbroken. And, yeah. you know, and she was, Amanda was pregnant at the time and about to have, you know, the, you know, Melissa would have been an aunt and she never, never got to experience that. Yeah. It's so tragic. Gosh, I can't, I just can't even imagine. Um, and it really, you know, when you get to talk to the victims' families, I mean, it really makes it real and humanizes it. And you see you know, you always have this picture in your head when somebody maybe is a sex worker or whatever. You just think that you don't, you, it's hard to picture their family life, I guess. And, and so when you speak to them, you see she did have a family who loved her and they were tight knit, like you said, and she was close with her sister. And she probably never meant for her life to be this way. And, you know, I'm of the belief that this could happen to any of us. You get yourself in with the wrong crowd, the wrong drug, the wrong whatever. There's a million things that could happen. And uh, you can come from the best family and, and all these things, and it could still happen. So, yeah. and I know th- there were, so there were three others of the Gilgo yep. Four, and who were they? Well, so, so what's interesting, as I said before, is the police officer who was training the dog who found Melissa. He was out the next day as they were processing the scene and he didn't have the dog out because they thought it was Shannon. You know, they just thought, well, we found her. And he's kind of wandering off from the scene down the, the highway, this Ocean Parkway, and he stumbles across almost literally another body. And then by that end of that day, they found two more. And so out of those three, you have Maureen, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who was the first to go missing back in 2007. And she was from Connecticut. And she was 
um, really funny from all accounts. You know, we got to talk, I got to do a special episode with her sister who at the time we were filming was not up for filming and just had personal things going on in her life. But we did a phone call a few months ago and we got to talk to some of her friends and, and she was just a very creative, very funny, like deep thinker, loved books and, you know, had, had come up in a tough family and was looking for a way to say like, I want to break this cycle that I was raised in. And she thought this was the way to do it, sex work. And it didn't work, obviously didn't work out for her. And she was going to New York from Connecticut, taking the train in. And she had gone with this friend of hers that they were both doing it together as kind of protection. And she ended up staying and getting robbed, supposedly. That's what she'd called and told her sister. She stayed by herself, had gotten robbed, was trying to get a ride home, and then somehow came across the serial killer who she'd usually posted ads. So we, I don't know if there was an ad up or he just came across. She'd called from Penn Station and he met her there, but she disappears and they don't hear from her. But about two weeks in, actually, her phone pings. Somehow it, someone turns it on. And it pings a tower out in Long Island. And that's it. That's all they know. And years go by. And finally, they're able to identify her along Ocean Parkway. And then there's also, I'm just getting my names here. There's a few M's. So there's Maureen. And then there's Amber. She was the last one to go missing. And she, she had just disappeared in like two or three months before she was found. And she lived in actually in Long Island lived with a guy who was kind of her roommate slash bodyguard, some would argue pimp. We talked to him. We've talked to him a few times and he uh, does not take that title, but she had set up this date and, you know, the guy kind of talked her into not taking her phone because it was going to be this overnight client, John, and then she just vanishes. So that's Amber. And then there was Megan Mm. and Megan was from Maine and she had kind of had its rough upbringing and she had these guys used to come up from New York to kind of sell drugs up in Maine because you could make a lot of money and they'd go to clubs and she'd kind of met one of these guys and kind of fallen for him. They call it kind of a Romeo pimp where he ends up being this boyfriend, but then starts using his, his spell to get her into sex work. And she does some sex work up in Maine, but he's like, look, we should go down to Long Island where you can get a lot more. And they do weekends in Long Island. And she ended up, you know, having some ads, getting a call and the boyfriend slash pimp was gone and she goes out to meet a client. She doesn't usually had in calls where he would come to the hotel in Long Island. The clients would, but she decides to meet someone away outside of the hotel, leaves her stuff behind and she vanishes. Hmm. That was about five months before she was finally found. So those are those four and all sex workers. And it seems the serial killer, you know, at least with two of them, uh, he probably kept, who, who knows, he may have kept all the cell phones, but he liked to keep the cell phone, you know, used it a few times to taunt one of the victims, you know, sisters, but then, you know, it, it, at the very least turned on the other cell phone for another victim. And so just seems like that was something he liked to do, which is... And then uh, he starts, not to interrupt, then he starts yeah. doing this thing where he talks him into leaving it behind. Yes. That so it is odd, and I wonder if he just he got spooked and he thought having the cell phone could lead to him getting caught. Who knows? I don't know. That's interesting. I think as you learn more about cell phones, as you know, time goes on, we know like they're tracking everything. You know, they know Mm -hmm. every move you make almost, and 
you know, if he's learning as he goes along, I mean, there's theories that, that this person, this killer is some man of importance, prominence in Long Island, maybe law enforcement. And, you know, it's like, look, I can't have you taking a phone because, you know, I don't want pictures. I don't want a digital track, you know, a digital paper trail. And so somehow they, you know, it wasn't just, according to Dave Schaller, Amber, the the final victim of the Gilgo Four, the one who had been the, the most recent, if you will, to vanish. He's like, you know, she had been in the business a long time, very smart. You know, she wouldn't just go for a big payday. You know, that's just a red flag if someone's like, oh, I'll pay you this, leave your phone behind. That's like, mm, okay, no. Yeah, yeah. So he thinks it was someone of prominence, someone that she had known, but also gotcha. had a reason for saying like, I can't have you bring your phone. Gotcha. It's, I am too important or I can't have, you know. Yeah. But you can trust me and I'll pay yeah. you a lot. And obviously that didn't turn out. Right. Well, there, there have been some recent developments in the case. Can you kind of walk us through some of the recent developments and where does it stand now? Yeah. So the most recent developments. So in January, they, they came out with a, some evidence that was found at the scene, which was a belt. And they, don't, they show some images from the belt and it's either an HM or an depending on how you read it, or a WH, you know, like if you flip it upside down because the way the the font is, but it's from something that was left at the scene. So they think, you know, they don't tell you a whole lot. Suffolk County had a press conference. They came out, they said, we made a website so people can bring in tips and we're releasing this image of this, this embossed belt. So I don't think it's a belt buckle. It's like letters on the back of a belt, Mm -hmm. but it was found with a victim. So we think it was the killers or at least used by the killers. But if it were a victim's belt, I think obviously the families would be able to identify it or rule that out. So that came out, which was the first thing they'd released. And they had been very quiet. They hadn't talked about it. And it's like, look, you know, as you know, you know, the public, they have some crazy theories, but they can do some great crowdsourcing too, to get some Mm -hmm. answers. So they finally released that. And then, you know, it helped that the movie came out based on basically Shannon's story and then how, she, even though she might not be related to the other victims, that how she tied in and how the families got to know each other and really fought to get these girls out there and get their story out there. Because as you know, they often, the press and the police, they often dismiss sex workers. So that came out. And then through DNA, so what happens is, after they find the Gilgo Four, they shut down searching because winter sets in, which I've never understood. It's like you can still search if it's cold. But finally in the spring, March, they start searching again and they find six more bodies. It, hmm. These remains of parts of bodies. And they start tying them to these other bodies that had been found around Long Island, dating back to like 96, when a pair of legs washed up on a beach. So, you know, there's theories that, well, it's two serial killers or it's one and he changed his MO. You know, he realized like, I don't have to spread the body parts. I can leave them all there because no one ever finds them along Ocean Parkway until 2010. So there's theories of, is it one or two? I, I believe it's probably one killer. And so they have the website and then they're able to, through DNA, familial DNA, finally track down one of the other victims because the other six were basically unknowns. There was one who was by chance identified as another sex worker who had done work in DC and it ended up dead. 
part of her body was found farther out in Long Island and then her remains were found and they were able to identify all that. But one of the Jane Doe's was finally identified a few months back, Valerie Mack. And she had been, she had family in New Jersey, had grown up there, had done sex work in Philadelphia and somehow ended up in Long Island. And that hasn't been figured out yet, but there is a family who finally knows what happened to you know, their family member. And like you said, a lot of, some of the girls, many of the girls do are estranged from their families or men, you know, these sex workers and these victims oftentimes are estranged. And that's why out of 10 victims in this, half of them are unidentified because, you know, they, these families, like they went off the grid, they're doing their own thing. We don't know. And Mm -hmm. maybe they had a drug overdose somewhere who knows where they went, but through DNA, they've finally identified one of them. And hopefully as more comes out about this Valerie Mack and what happened and where she was going, it could lead to clues about who's behind all this. And that's the hope. That is definitely the hope. And it was so tragic to find out that there was also a baby victims whose remains were found and tied to one of the adult victims of the serial killer. Is that correct? That's correct. It was, it was. A baby was found with one of the victims, but once they got the DNA back, they realized, okay, it's not with this victim. It's with a victim that was found farther down Ocean Parkway, which is weird. Like, was that just to haunt the police and just to be mean? Or was that this person had stored them somewhere and Mm -hmm. then got it mixed up to when he went to go get rid of bodies? It's horrific and weird to think about, but that's... But yeah, so there was a, a toddler found and... It was identified as the baby of one of the victims, but that's still never been, that person is still a Jane Doe. We still don't know who that is or who the baby is right? how that all happened. And there's a, there are theories that maybe that is, that person is really connected to the killer and that's how they were close enough to have the baby involved in whatever was going on. Right. Or that, because it's like, how do you work and have a, have I your know. baby along. I, you know, that just leads to weird things. And I don't know how, what happened there. But yeah, tragically, yeah. there was a baby involved. Oh my gosh. And, and, and then also another shocking part of this whole, you know, case is that Mary Gilbert, Shannon Gilbert's mother, she's been one of the most vocal, you know, critics of law enforcement and really trying to get her daughter's case out there and move this thing forward. She tragically was murdered by her own daughter, uh, Shannon Gilbert's younger sister, who, from what I understand, was also having an episode, right? I, I get maybe schizophrenia ran in the family. I'm not sure, but she killed her mother. There was definitely, you know, there was some mental illness in that family. And, and there's Cherie, Sarah, Shannon, and then Stevie. Tragically, Shannon is gone. And then Sarah is in jail. But yes, the daughter did. She really was schizophrenic and really struggled mentally. And I only know a lot of this because we got to really know John Ray, the attorney who ended up defending the sister pro bono after she killed her mother. And I've, you know, we've talked to him and how tragic it was that she really had some mental issues. And oftentimes as it goes, it was kind of overlooked by the state. You know, right. like she had made these threats and she killed a dog. Right. Puppy, and <sighs> because she was just struggling with her schizophrenia and uh, they just, I, you know, it's, I don't want to totally blame the state, but it's one of those, you know, they kind of overlooked it and she brutally murdered her mother because, she, you know, and it wasn't because she hated her mother necessarily. It was this whole, she was having these, thought she was the devil and 
was exacting justice on something. And but it was horrific. And John Ray did defend her and did the insanity plea because this is one of those times where I know it gets thrown around a lot. But according to John Ray, and I believe it, this is the time where it should have been used. She was crazy. Right. And so he is still defending her and they're gonna retry. They're you know, they're hoping for a retrial. And what he, did she I, get convicted of? She got convicted of murder. Murder. Do you know what degree or I would probably say I think it was first degree hmm. because they had tried to say that she was kind of hiding from it and that she, you know, like that she had known what was going on, which also didn't help her insanity defense. Gotcha. But once you learn the details, you're like, that's pretty weak. Yeah. Um, and again, I know people can try to abuse that and say, oh, I was crazy. It's like, well, you kind of covered it up and you got rid of the computer and you wiped your phone and then you had this whole alibi. She had none of that. But he is hoping for a retrial. And I talked to him, I think the day after the trial, and he was heartbroken. Mm. Just how hard he's worked. And he's a character. He is a he is an interesting fella, but he has worked so hard for that family. And that case really broke his heart. And he is hoping that he she gets another chance. Again, she did kill her mother. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah, it's awful. He seems so invested in Shannon Gilbert's family. Yes, he has done a lot of work. And, you know, he is one of those who this has all been pro bono and he is really, he's kept it in the light and he is really railed against the investigation. And, you know, he really believes, John Ray really believes Dr. Hackett is behind this with Shannon mm-hmm. Gilbert's death. It's hard to say murder. Yes. But he believes Dr. Hackett is behind it. And I've read a lot of the depositions he's taken and, and, like I said, there's some sketchy stuff that goes on in that neighborhood. And I think he's got a case, but he's done a lot of work. Oh, it'll be interesting. I'm sure more information will you know, unfold, hopefully, and, and hopefully more to come on this case. And hopefully just at the end of the day, we, these families get answers. Yes. Uh, and justice. Yes. That's what we hope for. And, and season two, you know, season one, we kind of really set up the victims and what happened and what the case is. And, you know, the tragedies that happened. And then season two, we're hoping to delve into who might be behind it. And, you know, we found some through an armchair detective who's done some amazing geoforensics. We've, we've got some POIs that we're looking at. There's a guy who's already been convicted of two sex worker murders that some claim he's it. And we're hoping to talk with him and his family who say the one, they speak to the one true constant in Long Island, which is corruption. Hmm. And, you know, if you, once you learn about this case and the chief of police and what he did to, you know, just sideline the case, if not help derail it, who went to prison for, you know, a couple of years who just got out recently. Right. He is a piece of work and there's a lot of corruption up there. And that's why my money is that there is whoever's behind it. They've got ties to law enforcement. Yeah, it sounds very plausible based on what I know. And I know that you know a whole lot more. No, I, I, you know, I'm really looking forward to season two. And I think you guys have done an awesome job with this, doing this deep dive. And uh, it's just such a fascinating case. And so, I mean, I assume that listeners, you know, who want to hear your deep dive on the LISC case can find the LISC podcast about anywhere, right? Anywhere you find your podcasts, if you you know look up LISK list Long Island serial killer, you'll find it. And it's we just barely touched on how weird and wild this case gets. 
So there's yeah. so much more to it. Yeah. Well, thank you well, for having me. I had so much fun talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, I will be waiting with bated breath for season two and out no rush because I know this takes a while. Well, we do have the world kind of still melting down a little bit, which is not helping. And that's not just because we want to make a podcast that we want safety and normalcy, but mm-hmm. we're, we're working on it and we'll have it out as soon as possible. If, as long as we get it right, that's what we really want. Cool. I'm so looking forward to that. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been such a great conversation. I appreciate all the work that you've done telling the story of the victims of the Long Island serial killer. Can't wait for season two. Well, thank you so much for having me on and keep doing the great work you're doing. And just this case and so many other cases that need attention and you do a good job at it. So thank you. Thank you. You have a good one. Thank you for joining me on this bonus episode of Murderish. Check out Murderish.com if you'd like to know more about the podcast or me. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon, where you'll get immediate access to exclusive content and have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. Go to Murderish.com to sign up. If you're looking for a Murderish t-shirt, face mask, or other merch, go to Murderish.com. Join the Murderish Facebook discussion group if you like talking true crime. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about the show. I'd also love it if you wrote a review for the podcast in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. As always, Ishers, Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.